Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And today we are coming back with a species spotlight episode, something we haven't done in a little while. And the species spotlight episodes always do really well. You guys seem to enjoy them. So we're happy to bring you another spotlight. And we are looking at crawfish today, a species that we don't really talk about too much, but I'm really excited because I learned a lot and it's a really fascinating species and we got to try it and it was delicious. We are sitting down with Greg Ritz, who is the founder and president of Ritz Crawfish Company. They traveled all the way from like two minutes down the road to come talk to us. Ritz Crawfish Company is a crawfish farm down in Louisiana, and Greg was gracious enough to come into the studio and talk to us about all things crawfish. But before we get into that conversation, please uh, remember to take a minute and subscribe to the Aquademia podcast wherever you listen, so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as they're available. Follow us on Twitter at Aquademia Pod. If you want to contact us for any reason, you want to sponsor the podcast, you want to be a guest, you have a topic suggestion, go to globalseafood.org slash podcast and fill out our online form. And if you have a couple minutes, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It really helps us out a lot and we appreciate everybody that has already done that. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation that we had with Greg and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down today with the founder and president of Ritz Crawfish Company, Greg Ritz. How's it going, Greg? Excellent. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Super excited because we haven't done a species spotlight in a long time and our listeners really love them. What was the last one that we did? Do you remember? Probably scallops. Was it scallops? I believe so. It's been a long time. And and we haven't done any crustaceans yet, right? No, we haven't. So today will be our first crustacean. So we are talking about crawfish today and we brought Greg on. He traveled... A very long distance to come here. Um, did you guys walk here? Yeah, we could have ridden a bicycle for sure. <laughs> That's this is you know we're in New Hampshire and Ritz Crawfish. The farm is actually not it's here in, in New Hampshire. It's in Louisiana, so. <laughs> in the heart of crawfish territory. I just happen to uh, to love New Hampshire and call this home. And uh, this is where you know the marketing and the you know the organization, corporate organization mm-hmm. is. But all the activities occur in Louisiana. Yeah, cool. So before we get into crawfish, let's talk about you. What's a quick background, kind of who you are, what you do, where you came from, and then how you got into crawfish? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, I would have never thought when I was mm, six or seven years old, when I earned my first nickel, literally it was a nickel, <laughs> okay, which kids today don't even know what a coin looks like, <laughs> right? Uh, and I used, coin, maybe. I used to dam up a, a stream, you know, that was uh, behind the neighbor's house and collect crawfish and go to the bait stores. I was a big fisherman. So I grew up in Maryland. I was going to say, where was this? Yeah. So this is in Maryland. So, you know, I was a waterman. My dad loved the water. You know, uh, we used to go crabbing for blue crabs and, you know, used to get oysters at the dock and shuck them. So, I mean, I've always kind of been attracted to seafood. That's how I was raised yeah. with my parents. So I used to dam the streams up and collect the crawfish and here's this little kid who goes to the bait store and sell them for a nickel piece. I don't know if they ever resold them or whether <laughs> they just decided to be uh, supportive of a, of a little kid yeah. working hard. But uh, 
you know, I grew up uh, with a wildlife background, you know, hunting, fishing in the outdoors, love, you know, the idea of conservation and farming. And I've made my career in the outdoors, uh, hosting the television show Hunt Masters on the Outdoor Channel. Um, and I've been doing it for 26 years. And uh, then our marketing company, Wildcom, handles many other productions in the outdoor space, all focused on conservation and wildlife. And uh, I own um, a lot of acres in the Midwest uh, that we uh, have row crops, corn and beans. So I have a farming passion and background there. And then we do a lot of habitat improvement, um, you know, for, for wildlife. So now you kind of take this, uh, you know, so you, so you take this uh, kid who grew up in Maryland on the water, you mix them mid, in the Midwest and kind of like what falls out of it. And I, uh, I got an opportunity to uh, make a land investment in Louisiana. And uh, when I did this, this was basically for waterfowl hunting and, uh, and mineral rights and things of that nature. And of course, I'm a tinkerer. So I'm looking at this farm that's 1,400 acres. I'm like, well, you got to do something with it <laughs> other than, uh, you know, go hunt wildlife and escape uh, from being eaten by gators on it. And uh, That's so, fun too, though. Yeah, of, yeah, I mean. of course. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, so that was my introduction to rice farming. So I'm like, well, we got a rice farm if you're in Louisiana because we're too far south. So if you kind of look at where crawfish um, kind of originate from, which is the United States, the Atchafalaya Basin, mm-hmm. um, you can pretty much draw a 50-mile radius and drop a pin on Jennings, Louisiana, draw a 50-mile radius, and 90% of your crawfish come out of that area. Okay. Interesting. Soil condition, weather conditions, and I just happen to land on the bullseye. Oh, right. Nice. By luck, <laughs> Right. And, uh, you know, I had eaten crawfish along the way, but I didn't know like how, you know, are they grown? Are they farmed? Are they all come from the, like, I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about rice farming. I quickly learned how to be a rice farmer. Then I quickly learned you can't make money being a rice farmer. <laughs> and, uh, and I got attracted to this concept of a polyculture mm-hmm. where you can have two symbiotic yep. relationships, right? And actually add to the food value on on an acre of ground? Like how can I provide something more beneficial for the environment, more beneficial to, you know, humans, if you will, because obviously we're, we're all kind of looking at the grocery store shelves right now, uh-huh. right? Going, you know, where's, where's my <laughs> next meal going to come from? And, um, and people will tell you who know me, if I get passionate about something, I'm obsessive. Like I have to learn and understand, and that's part of what brings us together, right? Is uh, you know looking through the BAP certification. Yep, there uh, you go for for our farms. Well, I think the three of us all have that in common, right, Sean? Yeah, I I'd think say when so. we find <laughs> latch on to something new, we obsess over it, and we we say that we're mediocrely talented in a wide range of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, you're what like a Swiss Army knife? Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I have a lot of skills, and I do many, many things, and I'm aggressively mediocre at all of them. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, and, and crawfish is such a, it's a cool crustacean, right? I mean, we're, we live up here in New England, right? So everything's lobsters, lobsters dominate mm-hmm. crustaceans up here. And, you know, it's a very elegant food, right? It's a luxury item, mm-hmm. tastes amazing, mm-hmm. right? You know, has a lot of various applications, but, but still kind of stays in its lane. And, uh, whereas crawfish is about fun, family, social, bringing people together. Like there's a culture behind the food that is well beyond a protein source. Like if you think of shrimp, 
right? Which is, you know, the, the largest farm seafood, right, in the world. Um, what's the culture behind shrimp, right? The culture is really like what I can do with it, not what it means socially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Crawfish socially mean it's fun and family and bring people together and dirty fingers and put your cell phone down and, and talk. So I, yeah. I love that part. And I bet the way you just described that, many of our listeners can probably imagine or whether it's something that they've seen in a movie from something that was based down in the South or not, where, where those large gatherings and, and just when I, when I think of that species specifically, that, that there's certain things that just kind of come with it. Mm-hmm. Same with lobster and other species as well. But I think a lot of our listeners probably visualize exactly what you were just talking right. about. Well, sure. Like a lobster, you visualize a stuffed lobster on a table, you know, maybe a little pile of lobster meat on top of a steak with a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a sauce over it or a lobster roll, right? I mean, they're, that's very definitive uh, things and crawfish is the boil, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And a massive pot with like- a, Right. right. <laughs> just a huge like, pile of crawfish. on the table and just everybody's yep. a free-for-all. And one of uh, my social goals and marketing goals for crawfish is to popularize the protein and go beyond the boil. Like what can, that's why you guys have sitting in front of you. I know people can't see it or, or <laughs> crawfish po'boys, which are amazing, done in the air fryer. And um, Sean uh, Davies, who works with me, she's kind of a resident chef, social media expert uh, and foodie. So I give her the credit for that. So don't think that I- When she's I, here, do you want to say hi, Sean? <laughs> and uh, and we and, will get this picture out. Don't you worry. No, it, it's, it's, it, it truly is amazing. But But I think the- we all like cultural phenomenon. See, if you think of sushi or you think of what cauliflowers become, or we kind of go back a generation to avocados, mm-hmm. is where's the next trend coming from? And for me, crawfish can become that because it can be sustainably scaled, mm-hmm. which is very important. And it can be done in this polyculture that we talk about where symbiotic with rice, which obviously, you know, is the largest grain grown in the world. And... um I wouldn't be surprised in the next five years if this doesn't become a world craze on the food side. So let's, I want to backtrack a little bit. When, and you might have said this, so I'm just going to have you repeat it. When did you purchase the property in Louisiana? Uh, five years ago. So five years ago. And that was initially for hunting. And land, then, land, right. Land investment and waterfowl yeah. uh, hunting. Yeah. Okay. Which led to rice potential, which then- Led to crawfish. Which led to crawfish. So we're, I'm just trying to set a timeline for our listeners. So within five years, and you talked about how you, you found a passion, probably researched the heck out of it, and just learned as much as you as you could. And now you're expanding all of these, you have these great ideas. Right. So we want to spend a good chunk of this episode talking about the species, because I don't know about you, Sean, I don't know a ton about crawfish, but I would like to learn a little bit more, like how I, you're raising it. S- yeah. So I guess really where we need to start is what is the crawfish we're talking about? Yes. Right? Yep. I mean, there's yep. 400 species of crawfish, most of it, most of them in the United States, by the way. And the number one species is, uh, if, if I mispronounce this, you guys can correct me later, <laughs> the Pro- Procombus clarkii or P. clarkii, right? I wouldn't uh, know if that's right or wrong. Uh, it's and probably, probably clarkii. Clarkii. There we go. So now I'll forever do it correctly. Well. Um, so I, I hope that's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're they're indigenous to the Atchafalaya Basin of Louisiana. So so the P. Clarkey, you know, you do have other uh, species around the world. The only other one that uh, from a kind of consumption basis uh, for humans uh, that is um, 
you know, farmed would be the Cherex. Okay. Okay. And that's native to Australia. Okay. Okay. Slightly bigger, lives in more temperate climates, warmer water, you know, slightly, slightly larger, very similar taste profile. Um, not as aggressive, not as invasive, you know, um, but, but another, so that would be the only other, those two species dominate what we consume as, as humans. 95% the P, the P. clarkii mm -hmm. and, uh, or the red swamp crawfish. And the other being the Cherex or the Red Claw. Okay, so for those who might actually have never seen a crawfish, it's picture a miniature lobster with narrow claws. <laughs> freshwater lobster. Yeah, freshwater yeah, lobster, right, basically. Right, right. But that's kind of what we're what we're about we're looking five at. inches long. Yeah. So indigenous to mostly the U.S. and Australia, you said the species that we that we eat, mm -hmm. freshwater, and where can you find them? Like what types of freshwater are they in? Swamps? Are they in lakes? What do you you know? Just to give everyone a, a good idea of exactly what we're looking at. So they uh, they are freshwater. They do they have a little bit of a tolerance for salinity. So there are some brackish water areas in in the in the basin Louisiana. You can still find them, mm -hmm. but they they tend to stay towards the freshwater. Um, you know, you can find them in people's backyards, right? Because anywhere where there's a water supply in the right soil profile for them to burrow, which is, can wait, we have this conversation on yeah, burrowing. Yeah, go right into right? it. Right. So, yeah. you know, because that's how they, that's how they reproduce. But, uh, like if you drive around Louisiana, so, so to give people a geographic picture in their mind, go on a map and look for Lake Charles, look for Lafayette, which is I-10, which really is connects to Houston. So that corridor right there between Lake Charles and Lafayette, you can go a little further north to uh, to Overland or Eunice, or you can go a little bit further south to Gaydon, which where one of our farms are. But there's your bullseye, right? Jenny's being in, 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 the, in the middle of that. So you can drive past people's houses and see these little mud huts. They look like these mud chimneys. <laughs> and it's a burrow for a crawfish. Because they, they can survive just about anywhere where there's water and a food source, food cover water. And, um, you know, they're, they're not too picky as long as the water's good and the food is abundant. Because they are, they are an omnivore. Okay. Right. So they, they will eat plant matter. They'll eat decaying fish that die. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they are very opportunistic. They're nature's recyclers. Right. So, so they're constantly eating and they're, they're not uh, discriminatory about what they, what they find for food. So then how, so I, I've seen crawfish farms. I've seen pictures of crops. Mm -hmm. I've never been to one, but it's interesting. Are you farming, like, are you using like the, the little nets, the little cages? Is that how you're farming it? So explain how crawfish are farmed because it's almost, isn't it almost more like ranching than it is farming? Yeah, that's a question I was going to say. Yeah. Better, better <laughs> description because I know a lot of people, you know, they have this picture in their mind of farm. These are still wild caught. Right. Right. Okay. Because they can leave. Right. They're, they're not yeah. in a pen. They're not in an aquarium. So the way the system works, okay, and, and it just happens to work cyclically well with a high value food source, which is rice. Mm -hmm. So you plant the rice, which is typically in March. Okay. And then when the rice, as most people know, rice is a semi-aquatic plant. Mm -hmm. So you, you plant it on dry ground. When it hits basically stage four, it becomes an aquatic plant, needs to live in the water. So you, so you need levees to raise the water to grow rice. Mm -hmm. When the rice gets to be six, eight inches tall, which is about 45 days, 
then you would seed the crawfish initially, okay, that you can get from other farms or you can get from the Atchafalaya Basin if you, if you want that brood stock. And you stock at roughly, you know, 50 to 75 pounds per acre. And what you're banking on is natural recruitment because at that point in this May, May timeframe, May, June, most of your females then are pregnant. So you're hopefully, when you, whatever you catch and you bring in then is going to be your brood stock, which are then going to have the babies that become, you know, your food source in the, mm -hmm. in the future. So then you let them sit out there. Well, then you harvest the rice in end of August, 1st of September. When you harvest the rice, you drop the water level. Mm -hmm. So now between May and August, they finish the reproductive cycle. The females burrow. They go onto their own to have their babies, right? This is natural. So it just naturally syncs up with the timing of the rice. And during that period, before they burrow, then they eat the rice. You know, high value. And then at the bottom of the, the root ball of the rice, right, you have what you call detritus, which I'm sure you guys have probably talked about, this natural food web of invertebrates, mm -hmm. essentially. So they eat that. They burrow. Females go underground. Then uh, you drop the water level. You cut the rice, right? And then mm -hmm. you reflood at somewhere between the middle of the end of September. You do not want to reflood too early because some of the females could come out early and the water quality is not, uh, you know, in a good shape for them to drop their babies, right? Okay. It's too hot, low oxygen level, so on and so forth. So then they come out in October, they drop their babies. Now, a female for the red swamp uh, crawfish could have upwards of like six or 800 babies. Okay. Typically, if you look at the spectrum, you'll have about 400. Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is it's all based off the abdomen size of the female. So Just like lobster. Yeah. Just like lobster, right? Yeah. The bigger the abdomen and the longer the swimmerettes, right, which look like these little hairs hanging down from the abdomen under her, right, allows her to then deposit more of the egg. So, so she... Uh, gets impregnated by the male, stores the sperm inside of a sack, right? Mm -hmm. Then when she um, deposits the eggs out of her ovaries, then she fertilizes the eggs, right? And then they attach to the swim reps. And then when she comes out in October, you have these little cralings mm -hmm. that look like small, translucent, little crayfish. They're really cool. And then they'll stay attached to her and then she'll drop them in open water. And for about two weeks, they kind of hang around with the protection mother. And then then they're on their own. Yep. And then four months later, they're marketable size. Are crawfish, are they cannibalistic? Very. Because I know lobster is super cannibalistic. If you're farming lobster, you need to, when they get to a certain size, you got to keep them in their own little space. You got to separate it them. Is, so. As crazy as this sounds, there's like this switch that goes off in the mother's head, right? Like any crawfish. Like once the crawfish leave, now they become food web. So if they're anywhere around the mother, she'll eat them. It's interesting, isn't it? Right. That's crazy. Well, that's why a lot of people don't farm lobster or don't do it. One, because it's expensive and you yeah. have to have all these different- It's not economically yeah, feasible for sense. most- For commercial- Where in this situation, side. there's so many of them. And, and like you said, it's, you're, you're farming them in the way that you're hoping they're staying in this space, which most of them do, but nature still takes place. Well, right. I mean, right. The- nature has evolved over time. There's a reason that they have so many babies, right? right? Because yeah. they yep. need, they're only going to have a survivability of five or 10%, mm -hmm. 
right? So they need to have that many to, to naturally reproduce. What you do have to be careful on when you get into, you know, the, the rearing of the crawfish is having too many. Oh, really? That's a thing that, that you can actually you can, end you up can with have, You can have too many. So they become more cannibalistic. Uh, you can have a big die off because the oxygen gets sucked out yeah. of the mm-hmm. water, mm-hmm. right? There's not enough, con- there's not enough food. So you're constantly, because you don't know, right? Did, okay, what's the survivability? So you're, you know, a, a really good crawfish farmer is doing test traps, always trying to find out what is my density? What is my density? What is my density? And trying to make sure well, you balance out the resources. Can you walk us through that process? Sure. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I'll tell you what our process is, and and obviously they it goes the the spectrum. So once the babies are born, it doesn't take very long before you can put them. I'm sure you guys have 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 seen how they'll put uh, food test trays out, especially for shrimp. Okay. Okay. So so envision basically a one meter by one meter um, square with with a mesh, right? Mm-hmm. So then you can put food on that mesh, okay? And you can then drop the food down in, in various spots inside your pond, right? And you let it sit there for a designated period of time. We'll yep. let it sit for an hour and we'll pick it up yep. and we'll look at the food consumption, mm-hmm. right? And then we'll look at how many crawfish are on the tray. Then when they get large enough, we have traps actually with smaller mesh. Then we'll go bait those traps and then do another test. Okay, how many crawfish are in the traps? So and you do this throughout the growth cycle. So we do it once, once a month. Okay. Mm-hmm. For four months. For four months. Yeah. And we can watch the growth of them. And then obviously the, the smaller they are, you know, pretty much what your percentage of survivability is based on gotcha. your broodstock. Because you have a bigger uh, difference between adults and babies. So that period of time, you know, before the water gets cold, like, you know, end of October, all the way through November, then we're okay. Our recruitment rate now is X. And therefore, this is the, this is the environment we need to provide for them. Okay. So then how do you harvest them? Same way? Just trap them? Very and... labor intensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we have 30,000 traps. Wow. Okay. And these are, these are hand traps, right? And they look like a pyramid and they have three little openings. And early in the season when the water's colder, you put uh, some type of fish in it. Mm-hmm. Pogey is the preferred, you know, some people, I mean, you use catfish heads, you can use carp. I mean, again, they'll eat whatever's in there. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. The the stinkier and oilier it is, because the oilier the fish, the more that scent- Is going to travel in the water, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And doesn't, doesn't dissipate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so- Typically, the middle of February, the, uh, the babies are marketable size. Mm-hmm. You know, on the, they're on the smaller end. And then, you know, you will harvest all the way through the first part of, of June. Are there different, and we're going to get into markets, the market for it in a little bit. Is there, are there different markets for the different sizes? No question. Yeah. Early in the year, the demand is so high, people aren't, you know, too choosy about the size. Right, right. As as more farms come online and the supply goes up, then then they divide basically into three categories. You have field run, which is the majority of what you sell. You have peelers, which are, you know, kind of 60% grown, which mm-hmm. go to the processing marketplace. Okay. And then you have your selects or grandes or whatever name for large crawfish. Yeah. So so from account standpoint, a 1620 
maybe 16 crawfish to a pound to 20 crawfish to a pound is your, are your field runs. Okay. Okay. Under 20 are your peelers. And then, you know, your, you know, U12 to, to 15 then become your, your selects. Are there Re- any re- restaurant grade? Right. Maybe. Are there any regulations on if one gets too big or too small that you just, I mean, I'm assuming too small probably, but large, there's no regulation so on the, too big? Uh, so m- most farmers fish with three quarter inch mesh in their traps to let all the, the, the little ones out. Still, mm-hmm. right? My personal philosophy is earlier in the season, because it really depends on the bell curve of when the babies are born. Mm-hmm. Right. So that bell curve based off of wetter weather patterns, because they need to molt 11 times before they become marketable size. Every time they molt, they grow about 40% in size, just like a lobster. Yeah. Right. But based off of weather patterns, barometric pressure, that molt may be accelerated or may be depressed. So when we're doing our test traps, there'll be times that we grade them right on the boat. And then we put the smaller ones back in yep. because we know they're going to be more valuable later, later in, on right, in, yeah. in the season. And we try to maintain a, a certain responsibility to the, to the quality in our customers. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. I feel like I had a bunch of questions. <laughs> you know, if you, if you kind of want to do a jump back into history. So the 1800s uh, was about the first time that crawfish became popular as a food source for humans, you know, and they were caught in the wild in the Atchafalaya Basin. Now, it's really kind of an interesting read about the Acadians, right? And in this folklore or this myth that uh, they, they migrated down from Canada, right? Hmm. And as they came down and they settled into uh, Louisiana, the lobster followed the Acadians. <laughs> and as the lobster started to come down following the Acadians, of course, the closer you get to the equator, things get smaller, right? That, uh, that as they made this pilgrimage and they, and they reproduced along the way, the lobster became the crawfish <laughs> and, uh, and became adaptive to, uh, to fresh water from salt water. Yeah. So everyone loves a good tail. So that supposedly is how we ended up with, uh, with the red swamp crawfish in the a Chafalaya Basin. And then in the 1930s was the first time that the farmers started to transplant them from the basin into rice fields. Because naturally, you know, because there are a lot of farmers who have rice fields that are close and the, and the crawfish migrate, they end up in the fields. Mm-hmm. And farmers started to, to realize, hey, well, maybe we can do something collectively, mm-hmm. uh, symbiotically yeah. with, with these two, uh, the rice and the crawfish. And then in the 50s, the light went off and said, hey, we now can make a marketable crop. Yeah. Right. And then in the 1960s, the crop became large enough. They, the first produce, the first processor started, you know, where they would actually cook them and sell them as whole boiled or they would cook them and peel the tail meat. So I know the history of lobster as a food was that it originally was used as like prison food and it was only fed to very, very poor and then somewhere along the lines, and I don't know how that changed, it switched over to more of a luxury food. Is the crawfish have a similar backstory or has it always been this kind of communal food source for the people in the area? The communal food source. Yeah, that's but that's in the United States though. Yeah. So the United States, which uh, obviously can claim the origin of the red swamp crawfish, uh, we are by far, um, China is the largest producer of crawfish in the world. Okay. So I'll give you kind of a scope of the marketplace. Shrimp, 
is is the largest seafood that is consumed in the world today, right? Five million metric tons, mm-hmm. right? Both capture and cultured. The next largest fish, and, and obviously this has evolved through aquaculture, uh, mm-hmm. is salmon, right? Two and a half million tons or thereabouts. But what if I told you tied for second is the crawfish? Okay. In world consumption. I don't know if I would have put it. Without looking at the chart, I don't know if I would have put it that high. And most people wouldn't. And so what happened during World War II is we had some of our servicemen, right? How they did this, we don't know. They ended up with crawfish as pets. And then those <laughs> pets uh, in Japan, you know, became popular. So these crawfish in Japan became like the aquarium, the cool aquarium yeah, yeah. thing, right? Where people, oh my God, you got a crawfish. Look at that crazy looking thing. <laughs> And then the, uh, those crawfish then uh, ended up in China, right, in the aquarium trade. And then some people got tired of the crawfish and dumped them, you know, into, into rice fields yep. and the bayous. And they naturally started to reproduce, right, because they can become invasive mm-hmm. if not, uh, not managed properly. So originally the Chinese said, oh my gosh, these came from Japan and, and culturally they don't see eye to eye and they tried to eradicate the crawfish. They couldn't eradicate the crawfish. And then the locals started eating the crawfish and they were like, oh my gosh, this is, a, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and we really have to give credit to, uh, to China for developing the aquaculture trade on crawfish and they've done a very good job and, uh, on creating a sustainable model. Nice. And, uh, and, and they, uh, so right now to give you perspective of size, we'll have 300,000 acres in the United States that crawfish are farmed in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rice crawfish combination. In China, it's 3.6 million acres. Wow. And would you say, at least in the United States, that, and probably China as well, that the best practice, or at least which may, probably makes the most business sense, is to do it with rice as well? Correct. For the reason that you increase the food value, right? Yeah. And this really, so there was a lot of uh, government money put behind the development of the aquaculture in China, okay? Mm-hmm. Because the government said, hey, we have all of this, these rice fields. We have how many billions of people, right? Seven billion people or whatever living in, in, in the country of China. Like if we can increase the food value per acre, right, this is going to help. So they, so they went through and, and helped to invest in how to create a sustainable, and they actually have a, 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 a model. So of course, the government owns the ground in China. Mm-hmm. So they dictated, came up with stand, standard operating procedures on how to, how to create this co-culture of, uh, of rice and, and crawfish. Yeah. And then it become the fad food of the middle class. Right. Okay. So during football games, you know, they were having deliveries made and, and they developed a special seasoning called the 13 spices. Right. And then they, because they, they cook them differently. Mm-hmm. Now they do boil them, but most of them are cooked in a wok. Right. right? And they have ginger and they have, mm-hmm. you know, garlic and other vegetables. So because they, you know, they think traditionally, they think culturally different than we do in the United States. Right. They, mm-hmm. they have different methods of cooking and spices. But and palates, they, you know, they're, palate, they're right. used to certain certain foods and certain flavors. So. Well, yep. they, they they do uh, sashimi crawfish. Nice. Right? So we don't even think about that no. in, the, in the United States, right? Where they go through and they find the big ones and they're fresh and live, right? And then the chef, you know, prepares them right there at your table so you know it's fresh. Like culturally, that's a 
pretty big deal. Yeah. So I want to go back to ranching, the idea of ranching versus farming. I don't I hate using the term versus for anything, but you've been in talks with the folks here uh, with BAP. Mm-hmm. And I know that one of the BAP stipulations, when I was working with BAP, I don't know if this is still a thing or if, they, if program integrity has kind of found ways to, to change this at all, but you could not get BAP certified if you weren't using larvae from a hatchery. And I'm assuming there's no crawfish hatcheries. Correct. So has that been a challenge for you in looking to pursue certification? So uh, I wouldn't say a challenge. We, we, it was so interesting to sit down with, with uh, you know, the folks here on the BAP side to realize how many things we were already doing that were in alignment, mm-hmm. right? Because we want the traceability, we want the transparency, we want the care for the the animal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, along along the way, which is crazy to think, you know, we're you know we'll produce a million pounds, right? And you, so you think of how many millions of that. And so you're talking about whatever twenty million individuals, right? And everyone matters to me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and so you want to create this perfect environment for them. And the philosophy that, that, that we, the route we went was as we're harvesting the crawfish, then we have a dedicated pond where then we call out the better of the broodstock, mm-hmm. right? So now we know where they come from, okay? And uh, so then we can then retrain so we can as we're harvesting we just don't sell those so yeah. then we put them basically in another pond where then they can go um reproduce and then we then we go and then once we pl- you know regrow our rice it's time to transplant them then we just move them around to different fields so we create our own closed ecosystem interesting if if if, if you will yeah. um all through native reproduction um you know and and it's and it's Trying to understand, I mean, and it's not a scientific way to to if you're going to run a hatchery, right? And and uh, and look at through selective breeding, mm-hmm. but you know over time you can see this happen. Uh, you know the the quality of your stock go up, right? Yeah. Right, and no, that's the whole idea. Interesting. I'm just curious because I know we we used to have a lot of discussions. We'd have eel farms come and mm-hmm. want to get certified, and we have to say, well, no, you you know you're using wild caught fingerlings, so right. we can't certify that. So that was just something that was. I wasn't sure about how that works. Well, and, and so if you if you think on these uh, on these two farms, right, it's twenty one hundred acres. We have thirty different ponds, okay, and mm-hmm. then each pond then has various cuts in it based off the topography, right? So we may have one forty acre pond that has one cut, so you have two twenties, but then we may have one forty acre pond that has nine cuts. So what we do is we play the shell game, right? is we take from this one to put to this one to this one to put to this one. So we, you know, we now can move the genetics around the property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then over time, you know, balance out how the natural reproduction occurs all within a set footprint, right? So so nothing leaves the ecosystem, but we can transplant within the ecosystem, yep. which Very is cool. which has been kind of fun to, to learn how to do, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. You wonder how many consumers, right? that are listening to the show and are thinking of when we talk a lot about how does food get to your plate and just hearing the last five minutes of this conversation and thinking of the processes and the data management and everything that's going into this to make sure that you have a high quality, uh, respectable product right. and making sure that the consumer is getting, it can trust that. And also it's just, there's so much to it that I never realized until just kind of hearing this whole process. It's it, well, and, and then dealing with natural reproduction on top mm-hmm. of that, right. And how, and how those changes can occur. 
But the, you know, when you boil it down to the fundamentals. Pun intended, boil it down. Right. Let's park <laughs> genetics, right? And you, you're talking about the food covering water, right? And water quality be, being very important. But yep. the food source is, is primarily the rice. Mm-hmm. So the better you are at rice farming, the better you are going to be at being a crawfish farmer. But then in concert with that is understanding what aquatic plants benefit the crawfish, like alligator weed, okay, okay which is indigenous to, to the area in Louisiana. Because aquatic microphytes, right, or aquatic plants, mm-hmm. they're Mother Nature's filter, mm-hmm. right? So obviously photosynthesis is going on and you're putting oxygen into the water. You have a live tissue growth going on, right, which is beneficial, which provides, you know, food as well as cover for the crawfish. And if you look at uh, how an alligator weed grows, right, so it grows from the bottom, but it spreads out on the top. So you get this canopy of shade. Okay. And then all, and then when the little cralings are born, it gives them a place to hide. Mm-hmm. So like we, we start understanding that you don't necessarily have to, you got to understand the dance with mother nature and, and dance with her and not fight her. Mm. And uh, a lot of the rice farmers, I don't want any weeds in here. I want this perfect. Yeah. And I'm like, great, alligator weeds growing, good, <laughs> right? And, and because then as they eat the rice stubble down, right, then we want, you know, this food source with the microphytes growing. Yeah. So, so understanding that. Uh, has, has really increased our ability to farm at higher volumes and then provide for a better growth genetics. Do you have any, I know that some farms have methods for deterring predators like birds, for example. I mean, is that a... Oh boy. <laughs> uh, I love all wildlife. I think you hit a nerve just you know, <laughs> but when when uh, When you drive by your farm or down the road and there's a flock of egrets and they're pink yep. and they're not white. The pink comes from the iodine in the shell of the crawfish and, or you see, or you see them grab one out of your trap and you yep. go, oh my gosh, there's a nickel. There's a nickel. There's yeah, a nickel, yeah. right? It is what it is. I mean, we, you know, we do have uh, butane cannons, right? Basically noise poppers to help yeah. flush them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it comes back to the dance with mother nature. Yep. It's, she helps to self-limit, you know, what the carrying capacity is. So as long as I account for that, mm-hmm. I don't get stressed by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because then you have other things, like the last thing you want out there, the last thing are bullfrogs. Really? Oh boy. Do they eat the larvae? They eat, yes. Yeah. Correct. No, I mean, they eat the adult crawfish. Really? They're vicious. Jeez. So- you know, <laughs> that's not what I would have guessed. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly. So we go through a very regimented process and we drain our ponds to lime them, yep. right? To, to make sure from a bacteria standpoint, a tadpole standpoint, right? That, that we keep mother nature in check because you're, you're, you're never going to, unless you want to grow them in an aquarium where everything's controlled indoors, it is what it is. Mm. Um, you know, the farming gate on, I mean, we have alligators, mm-hmm. but. The alligators then eat the nutrirats, and then, then the nutrirats don't eat my crawfish. So you just kind of, <laughs> you know, you kind of just, you know, let Mother Nature do, do what she does. And, and that's why we have 400 eggs to a female. Yeah. That's funny. It's so different than um, someone who's talking, who would come in to talk about like an RAS system. Yeah. Where they have complete control over everything and it's, a, it's completely closed in. It's just, it's so, there's so many different ways to do this. It's fascinating. 
We're in, actually, we're at 40 minutes right now. So let's talk about the market a little bit, mm-hmm. and then maybe we can do a live taste test on the air. But what is the market demand? Because I feel like it might just be because we're in New Hampshire, but we don't hear a lot about crawfish up here. We don't see a lot of it. It's not part of the culture up here like it is in some other parts of the country, other parts of the world. What are we looking at for the marketplace for crawfish? And that's a, that's a great question because 90% of the crawfish are grown in Louisiana. 90% are co- consumed in the southeast. Mm-hmm. Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Mississippi, a little bit of Arkansas. Let me draw a halo around that. That's, that's the bullseye. Mm-hmm. And that's really governed by two main, I guess three main things. Uh, first is supply, mm-hmm. right? We, we do not have, you don't have a year-round supply, right? You have a very short supply and, and it's consumed primarily locally. That's one. Two, cold change distribution. The ability to move product around the country to keep it fresh. Yep. yep. Okay. Now, some of that is being balanced out by, by processors, right, who are boiling them whole, right, mm-hmm. and then freezing them mm-hmm. or picking the tail meat. And then, um, you know, you can buy tail meat to put in an etouffee. You can put it into a jambalaya, yeah. things, of, things of that nature. Right. And then the third aspect is what you touched on, Sean, which is culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where, when we do the taste test, I'm hoping to break some of these barriers down. Mm-hmm. Is culturally anything you do with shrimp, crab, lobster, any type of dish, I don't care whether it's a lobster roll, it's shrimp scampi, right? It's a crab cake, you can do with crawfish. Crawfish, it's a very unique protein. First of all, it's very nutritious. So if you look at the profile, we'll send you a graph on this. Yeah, yeah. Please um, do. You know, as far as the protein, cholesterol value, what have you, it's, it's dang near, it's like an egg. It's dang near perfect, right? But it's a naked protein in the sense that a shrimp has a briny taste, right? A lobster has this little sweet briny taste. Mm-hmm. A crawfish assumes the taste profile of how you cook mm, it. The, the tofu of crustaceans. It's, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, you you're, can use that. You're right. I, could, I, I can use that. I'll, I'll make sure I Go for it. put your name behind that. And, 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 but that gives you such a flexibility with the protein. Mm-hmm. So now what we've been working on is, uh, is actually selling the meat raw, uncooked, fresh. Mm-hmm. Right. So you obviously have the crawfish and, and one of the barriers to entry culturally is, oh, my gosh, what do I do with a live crawfish? I got to cook it. If I don't cook, it, it's going to die. And if it dies, what do I do? What do I do with right, the shells? Right. right. OK, let's eliminate the waste. We know trucking costs are going up. Eighty percent of a crustacean is shell and ship high quality, fresh, uncooked meat, which is how we've prepared these mm-hmm. uh, these po'boys. And uh, and now anything you do with a crawfish is just mirrors what you're used to doing with shrimp and other. Yep. And do you flash freeze it to send it out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Nice. Yep. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to try it. It's Sean just put it right in front of me. <laughs> 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 but worldwide, I mean, like you said, it's mostly consumed locally. You said there's another uh, popular species that's raised in Australia, mm-hmm. New Zealand. Australia. Yeah, it's Australia, the cherries. Um, is that the same case where that is pretty much consumed locally as well, or do they ship around it, the world? Um, well? It's starting to go beyond that. And you China know, too. Right, in, 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 in Asia. Europe right now um, is a wide open market. It's, it's, it's untapped. I mean, the, the orders that, that we could ship today if we had to fill are in the, are in the 
you know, millions of pounds. Yep. Um, Canada as well. Now, obviously Canada has a very large Asian population. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the, the, the cover is coming off on this because we're finally getting enough of a supply in the world, right? Because pretty much what China grows, China consumes because the yep. demand is so high yep. and their commitment. So now the only other two major suppliers in the world currently, and I think this will change, are Egypt, okay, coming mm-hmm. out of the Nile. Yeah. Right. Kind of like our Atchafalaya Basin, their Nile, they're invasive to the basin, so they're not farmed. Yep. Okay. And then the United States. So what what Ritz Crawfish Company is doing is we're investing heavily in the process of increasing our pounds per acre, understanding what truly grows a superior crawfish. Okay. Which by the way, a lot of that comes down to their digestive system. Most people don't know that that they um, you know, require good gut bacteria in their, they don't have an autoimmune system in a crawfish. Okay. okay? So they, they don't have an adaptive immune system. Mm-hmm. So the way a crawfish fights off bad bacteria, because they're nature's recyclers are constantly in touch with pathogens yeah. out there, is they have to have good gut bacteria. Well, how do you do that? Right. Mm-hmm. And understanding the protein values that they have to consume Increase your survivability and the growth rates. Getting into this microbiology of crawfish is is fun because then it opens up the world to you know a greater supply, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's where we're focusing. That and then obviously what Sean has here, the marketing of Beyond the Border. <laughs> I, have, I don't want to end the conversation, but I do have some points. Like I really want to know what your favorite recipe is. Mm-hmm. So I want to touch on that mm-hmm. before we go. We also have to do this taste test mm-hmm. because I've been trying for the last 40 <laughs> minutes not to pick at that tray. Okay. So, so before we do that, um, I got one more question and then let's, let's, let's go into recipe territory. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges in crawfish farming, crawfish marketing, just the whole industry? What are the biggest challenges that you're facing right now? And what do you think needs to happen to overcome those? So it's changing the mindset. Yes. Okay. okay. Right now in the U.S., and, and I hope none of our listeners take offense to this, we have rice farmers who are trying to earn a living because they can't throw rice by having crawfish on their farms, mm-hmm. okay? They're not crawfish farmers, by and large. To me, the rice is the food source, is the natural part of the food web for the crawfish. I'm focused on crawfish. And what I mean by that is what we mentioned earlier with the microfights. I don't have to go harvest 50 barrels to the acre of rice for me to be happy. Okay, so I harvested 30 barrels to the rice because I cut back on insecticides, by the way. You know, within the kingdom of crawfish, Mm -hmm. they're considered an insect. Yeah. Okay. Sea bugs. Correct. Um, So therefore, a lot of your insecticides, a lot of your herbicides, right, are making sick or killing your crawfish. I'm identifying those. I'm eliminating the use of those. I'm understanding better how the crawfish in a multi-cropping system can reduce my greenhouse emissions by reducing the amount of nitrogen and then the amount of phosphorus that I need to put in the ground because now I can play to the advantage of the shell waste through molting. I can play the advantage through the ammonia, through the excretion right, of the crawfish, 
and how to break that apart to NO3 and NO4, right? And have that uptake into the plants, mm-hmm. right? So I'm focusing on, and, and this is not, when I say I, I'm trying to champion the path, mm-hmm. okay? There are some good crawfish farmers going, okay, I can reduce my input cost. I can increase my yield. I can reduce my carbon footprint. I can utilize the soil to, for carbon sequestration, and I can make money. Sounds good. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a, right, it's a great story. But to identify the how and, and, and interlink all those puzzle pieces is what keeps me up late, late at night because it, it checks a lot of boxes for people and sustainability. Yeah, and, that's, and changing minds is the hardest thing to do. And we've talked about this before with the mindset around seafood in the U.S. is, is really, really hard to crack. Um, whereas in other countries, it's, it's just part of a more regular part of the culture. And so it's harder to get people in the States to eat more seafood. And especially when you're talking about a species that is primarily only in this one area, right? Right. So it's harder to, to make that change. So so here's another interesting fact for you guys, and it's worth looking up, but, but it's right. So if you were, of course, kind of unfair, we live in New England, but if you were to ask all of your friends around the country, do you know of lobster? Have you tried lobster? Mm-hmm. They would say, oh, yeah, of course, right? I mean, you have red lobster, right? And then, of course, you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have very high-end lobsters, right? In the United States, we consume about 200 million pounds of lobsters, okay? If you ask people about crabs, hey, have you tried crabs, blue crabs, Dungeness crabs, king crabs, right? Yeah. Um, blue crabs obviously being the largest part of the, of the crab. They'd be, yeah, tried it, heard of it, seen it on a menu, and we consume 200 million pounds of crabs in the United States. But culturally, to your perspective, Sean, we consume 200 million pounds of crawfish in the United States annually. But it's all done in the it's South. It's all in one, yeah. one little. Right. It's, it's, it's right. It's that geographic area. So I believe we're going to champion how to be better, more responsible farmers for rice and crawfish mm-hmm. and, and use it as this multi-cropping coal culture. 100%. And there's guys that are supporting our initiative and working with us, other local farmers. We'll break, we'll break those paradigms down. Now, how do we go get people to try crawfish and be like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. Now, we have partnered with some restaurants up here, whether it's Jumpin' Jays or, or others, to put them on their menus as specials. Yeah. And, and we're starting to see the wheels turning now mm-hmm. because with lobsters, it's a marine animal. right? Let's, let's just go to capture fisheries in general. For the last decade? probably almost 20 years now, right? Mm-hmm. There's 90 million metric tons of wild seafood caught, period, will never change, right? Yeah. Because we are at the max sustainable level, yeah. right? And yeah. obviously they're all species, right? right. But w- and that's why aquaculture now is the same size and growing beyond what, uh, what the capture industry is because we are growing as, we are growing as a world population and culturally we have the shift towards high value protein better diets yeah. right mm-hmm. i mean the statistics are predicting between now and 2030 we're going to increase the amount of seafood consumption by three pounds a person well you do the math now that's everything that's everything from tuna fish yeah, to tilapia exactly. right, right? Yeah, yeah yeah but where's it come from and what truly is scalable like salmon can be scalable but there's challenges and big financial hurdles to get there. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Like but crawfish now, because the rice fields are already there, the infrastructure's there, the mm-hmm. knowledge isn't. 
So I think as we break down those cultures, do I think the U.S. is going to be behind the curve on the popularity? Yes. Do I think we're going to catch up? Well, you hopefully, guys, you, you guys take a bite of the sandwich and tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about. Let's talk. Actually, Sean, you prepared this. Do you feel like speaking? <laughs> I, I want to ask you to just tell us what you did with this before we taste it. This is a take on the shrimp po' boy. Um, however, it's done with the fresh whole tail meat, um, and it's breaded in a cornmeal mixed with some Zatarain's Creole spice, and it has a truffle-infused spicy mayo along with a um, fresh tomato mixed with some, uh, the breading is a farm-fresh egg from our chickens, and some... Um, Shredded lettuce on a baguette. So enjoy. Shauna always tells me not to eat or drink on the microphone, but uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's gonna, we'll break that today. Well, and, and so, so that's the foodie talking, right? So from the guy talking, you know, you're going to air fry this guy's for eight minutes, right? So all of this, as fancy as it sounds, because Sean makes everything seem easier than it is, <laughs> was 10, 10, 10 minutes, really, 20 minutes to prepare. And I think that's the, the opportunity here for these working parents, everybody against the gun coming home. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm tired of cooking another chicken breast. Like, what, what do I do, right? How do I have a high value protein in a fun little package for my family or my kids? Break out the air fryer, cook this up, and in 20 minutes, you have a great meal. 10 minutes cleanup, boom, you're done. Yeah. And, uh, and you're talking about the a healthier choice sometimes. Correct. and. Yeah. The, what, what other options are out right. there for a quick meal, right? right. And, and so what Sean did was she went and researched shrimp. What's, what are done with shrimp? How do you make a po' boy? Oh, air fryer. Great. We have an air fryer that's easy. And I think if people, when they start playing with the protein, that's how you go down the rabbit hole, right? You, mm -hmm. you pick something and you diversify, yeah. right? You pick a shrimp and say, okay, let me, let me go beyond that. But, uh, well, let me, uh, let me know what you guys, uh, you know, I'm pulling the mic away for you're, a minute. You're, you're, yeah. pull, you're pulling yeah, the nobody, mic away. Yeah, nobody needs to hear that, <laughs> the, the chewing. So I tell my wife frequently, who's from Maryland, by the way. Oh, she is. Yeah, oh. She's, she's from Gaithersburg. All right. I tell her she can put the Cajun or the Creole seasoning on anything. Yep. And I will eat 10 pounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> the, Delicious. Uh, in, and, Delicious. And, and what people will find, and Sean and I discovered this, is Crawfish don't have a fishy taste. No, not at all. Very super mild. Super mild. And, uh, and to your point, being you know from Maryland, you break out the Old Bay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? Old Bay we, goes on a lot of our Old Bay <laughs> goes on a lot, right? We, we, you know, we play with Zatarans. We play with a lot of the Traeger spices because we do uh, a lot of cooking on the, on the Traeger. And uh, so whether it stands alone in a po' boy or as a complement to, to another protein on your plate, that's... Uh, and so think about what we were just talking about three or four minutes ago. You researched how to prepare shrimp and mimic it. And you were talking about this where because this takes on flavors, everyone's different with what their palate is. And if you have something that can take on a flavor that you're used to, maybe use a shrimp recipe and see what you can do with this. Great, and I'm great, seconding great idea. Right. If you like said, Mediterranean type foods, then, you know, then use those same sauces, spices, you know, what have you, herbs to, uh, you know, create a fun protein. So on our website, ritzcrawfishcompany.com, we have crawfish alfredo, we have crawfish queso, we have crawfish fried rice. So there's a, a lot of recipes on there, crawfish bisque. Um, so truly, it, it's another popular seafood source, and it's just as delicious. 
just as nutritious and it's, you know, a lot of fun to make. And of course, there's your classic crawfish boil. One thing we didn't talk about was all the fun names that it has. And Oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I've heard crawfish. I've heard crayfish. I've heard mud bugs. I've heard crawdads and crawdaddies and all kinds yep. of fun stuff. So yep. that may be, you know, a challenge with the marketing as well, where there's so many different names for it and people might think that they're different species. Mm -hmm. or, I mean, mud bugs is not really a marketable name for seafood. It, it, so <laughs> No, but you know, people have fun with them. Right. And I think that's why you have so many different names is there is something cool about it. And, and when crawfish season comes in, all you have to do is go on social media, right? And end of March and it's crawfish. Oh, we got the first crawfish, the first, first boil of the year. And, and it, it just kind of explodes. Uh, and a lot of it does parallel, uh, you know, the Easter season with Lent um, because culturally that kind of fits down in, mm -hmm. yeah, down, yeah. down in the South. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just like the avocado used to be a, a seasonal fruit, uh, you know, and now is a household staple yeah. year round. I think we're going to see the same with crawfish in a very sustainable, scalable way. That's the goal, right? I hope so. I, I like crawfish. I've had it before and I, but we never, we never buy it. And now I'm feeling I'm going to go home and be like, <laughs> Sam, put it on the grocery list. <laughs> but things like that don't happen overnight. So right, exactly. what we just did here today in this hour was we're educating people and we're trying to make this an understanding uh, or to kind of get a better understanding of this industry, this species, and it's hopefully expansion across the United States and around the world. Hopefully people will start seeing it in more places where they shop or- And, and, and they will, right? I mean, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry globally. And now in the United States, I think we're going to see, you know, that continue to, to grow. And I think you're going to see more- countries, uh, especially third world countries, uh, you know, that are so dependent on rice grow. And, and I think if I can be part of that flywheel to help feed the world responsibly, right. And in turn help on the, the environmental impact in reducing, mm -hmm. right. Our carbon footprint, like why wouldn't you do it? Exactly. And I appreciate you coming on and telling us all of uh, the tricks and tips that you've learned over the years, because you know, there are some people that in certain industries who would consider that stuff trade secrets. And I don't want to tell people that, but like sharing this knowledge is what's really going to help no question. spread this protein and just make, it's going to be better for everyone. So we really appreciate you yep. coming on here and sharing all of your wisdom and everything that you've learned with us. We've kind of talked about what's next for the industry, what the goals are and everything, but what's next for Ritz? The is, is scaling what we do and providing more people with the crawfish in the in the raw, you know, uncooked format to break down those those barriers. So so we're now going to evolve the farming like we have. You know, we're going through the certification process with BAP. So mm -hmm. right now we've checked all those boxes. We just have to go through the accreditation Found process, it, yep. and then uh, and then it's focusing on the marketing and the, and the processing side of the business because I do believe there's a hurdle. When somebody receives a, a live crawfish in the shell, like, what do I do and how I cook it? It's a little intimidating for people. Yeah, yeah for right. sure. Well, it's just like a crab, yeah. right? Or a lobster. We're, we're used to it up here. Yeah. But if <clears> I can get- <throat> Not everyone is. Right. If I can get lobster meat in a bag, why can't I get good, you know, fresh craw meat, crawfish meat in a bag? Yeah. So that's where our, our focus uh, is, is going. And that's, you know, and then obviously Sean will continue to evolve the recipes <laughs> so people have inspiration. <laughs> You don't have your own processors. I'm guessing you, you work with other Correct. processors. Correct. Just curious. Yeah, we partner with them. Very cool. 
So is there anything else that you want to kind of get out there while you have the platform? You know, I think research is king and there's, there's so many great things to find on social media and there's so many great ways to immerse yourself in this. And, uh, and I just challenge people to keep an open mind on, uh, on everything they do, because I mean, food really is one of the things that bring people together. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, and I'm just glad to be, you know, part of this industry and fun to be across the street from you guys. Yeah. We got to make sure we, we got to do a part two of this. Let's sometime. do a big boil. <laughs> Perfect. Let's do it. We should do that. If any of our listeners want to learn more or they want to contact you, what is the best way they could do that? Either through the website or social media at Ritz Crawfish Co. Perfect. And we will link to and, all and, that and in And I the will say notes. this, Sean handles all the, the social media. Like we will respond to you. We'll answer your questions. We'll connect you with people. You know, we'll help, you know, facilitate how we can. We, we look at ourselves as being blessed as ambassadors for this crawfish space. And, uh, and to us, there, there aren't a lot of secrets, right? We rather just raise the tide and the awareness. And then, uh, you know, we all benefit. Yep. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you guys. I'm getting back to my food. <laughs> Folks, that was our conversation with Greg Ritz of Ritz Crawfish Company. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned as much as we did. I'm sorry that you didn't get to taste the crawfish po'boys that we had. They were delicious. Spoiler alert. If you really want to see what they look like, take a look in our Twitter feed. and um, We'll make sure that we get a picture out. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more episodes, please make sure you're subscribed to Aquademia wherever you listen. So every time we come out with a new episode, it'll automatically be downloaded onto your device. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact us for sponsorship, you have a topic suggestion, or you want to be a guest, fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And again, like I always do, I'm going to ask that if you have a couple minutes, please take the time to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It really helps us out a lot, and we appreciate everybody that has done that. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.